RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I'm sure many of you have heard about the Stop Co-Governance Tour, which has been going for quite some time now around New Zealand. And uh, that's headed up by Julian Batchelor. And there are clips out there on social media of uh, Julian up in front of crowds. And he is basically trying to stop co-governance. And we thought it was about time to talk with Julian on Reality Check Radio, find out how that's going, what his experiences have been, and to see if, you know, he's getting anywhere with this. So Julian Batchelor is joining us this morning on Reality Check Radio. Julian, welcome to our radio station. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Paul. Great. Okay. Now, I first uh, heard about your tour, I think, uh, last year or late last year, starting in Whangarei. And I think you... You kind of started with problems there with uh, the venue being sort of pulled out from under your feet at the last moment, though you got you got that back together, right? That you sort of put Humpty back together there. Yep. And uh, the Free Speech Union came to our aid and they said that's a clear breach of um, the Bill of Rights. And so Sport Northland backed down and they said, you can come now. Uh, they Sport Northland said, we've signed up to um, Titoriti and the co-governance arrangements with the government. And so we can't have anybody in the building who is um, against co-governance. That's how it started sort of thing. Yeah. So that, um, you know, uh, what you just said there from the the people running that venue, do you think they actually believe that themselves or that is really just a policy they have to work with and their, their jobs are, they're in the boss's office trying to explain things if they do anything different, regardless of how they feel? No, I think they've. I think that my talking to the executives of Sport Northland, I think they were um, personally thinking that it was the best thing. That um, uh, co-governance is a wonderful thing, and um, that they were proud to be part of Sport Northland and pushing the co-governance barrow, as it were. So, how come they're supportive, but many New Zealanders aren't? Where's the where's the mismatch? Where's the disconnect? I think it's a lack of understanding. I mean, people had gone to Sport Northland from my understanding is from the government and sold it to them and said, this is going to be wonderful and so on. And they sign up and, um, but they're misinformed about the realities of co-governance. Have you read my book? Have I, have you got a copy of my book? No, I'm aware of your book, but I haven't read it. Oh, I'd love to send you one because I, I lay, I lay out from, um, I lay out from 1975, the beginning of the uh, Treaty of Waitangi Act, right through 2023, and, sh- and show how the treaty has been twisted and contorted and fraudulently manipulated to um, to um, give elite Māori massive wealth um, and assets that belong to all New Zealanders, um, and how that's happened. Now, of course, that's not that's not going to be publicised. It goes right back to the, and so so people are unaware of what's happening. So you have the 55 million public interest journalism fund, which is virtually everybody signed up to, except Reality Check Radio, Sean Plunkett, and I think it's the West Coast News. And they're all now contractually required to push the government narrative on this. And so yeah. you have you have yeah. a media that's brain that's grooming the country and brainwashing the country, and there's no alternative voice. Are they doing that for the money? Just the money? Who's that? The media. Oh well, it appears to, appears to be because they're 
you know, as you know, when COVID hit, media agencies really struggled because they had no income and they had outgoings like power and rent and wages. So at the end of COVID, they had large debt and they needed money to get out of debt, pay their bills. And the government came along with this great big fund. It's fantastic. And they all signed up to it. And so, you know, I, I and the, the kicker is that at the bottom of that contract, the government can w- withdraw or, sorry, recall the loan. Yeah, it's a loan. It's mm-hmm. a loan. They can work if you don't meet certain thresholds. And so they are now sort of trapped into more and more um, government narrative, more and more Maori content, the marification of their TV, their radio station or their newspaper. Um, and um, they're, they're, they're at the, um, you know, behest to the government. Sounds like a mafia shakedown. <laughs> it's a serious, it's a really serious thing that you've got a, you've got a media in New Zealand that's really a government media. Hmm. It's a, it's a terrible thing. So I take my hat off to you guys for what you're doing because it's so necessary this, to, to, to give the alternative voice. I and mean, we're, su- we're supported by grassroots New Zealanders, just everyday people. We don't have those strings attached, and it just shows you that that is possible. Yeah, well, you know, you got support, um, financial support to start it all off, and so have I. And so um, there's a lot of Kiwis supporting us, grassroots, supporting us just like they're supporting you because a lot of Kiwis are now very aware of how corrupt the media is, and they're saying this can't go on like this. And so they have become aware. They've awakened. Um, <clears throat> I want to get on to all of this in just a moment, but I'm just curious what you think about this. So they take the money and they start uh, shaping their reporting across the board to fit the contract, let's say. They don't want to have to pay all that money back. Some of them have taken multi-millions. Mm-hmm. They must know the conflict. It must weigh on their conscience. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a journalist in the, in the... No, but any, any you know, normal thinking person would have this question. And if you're prepared to do that just for the money given that, um, you know, it causes issues for a nation, you've got to wonder how and why. Well, you do wonder how and why, but it's it's obviously possible for a man or a woman to overcome their conscience, to sear their conscience, and to um, allow money to to overrule their conscience and their job security and, and, you know, everything else that goes along with that. I, I can't get into the mind of those people, but... It would certainly worry me and it would worry you. But, you know, I mean, some pretty awful things have been done in this world in history against the grain of people's conscience. I mean, look what happened in Nazi Germany and look what happened in, is happening all around the world. People are doing things that you'd think, how does a person with a conscience do that? Hmm. I wonder if it uh, um, stops them sleeping well at night. I don't know. I guess we'll never know. All right, since you kicked off the tour, you've been quite a few places. It must have been a, quite an incredible journey so far. What's it been like? Absolutely exciting. Hugely exciting. And the reason for that, it has a lot of elements that make life very exciting. It has danger. It has um, strategy. It has involves commu- very communication. It involves people. It involves um, money. It involves uh, intelligence. It's massively stimulating, and you never know what's going to happen the next day. It's totally unpredictable. Right. 
And uh, but for me, it's massively stimulating because what makes it stimulating is that we are getting somewhere massively. We've printed three hundred and fifty thousand of those books in twelve weeks. Wow. Yep, that's significant, and that's people buying them. Buying them. Okay. We've got the price down to fifty cents each. Still, they started, it's, they started it's off reasonable turnover. It started off. It started off at two dollars each, and then we were able to print a huge number, and people helped us with that, and then we got the price down to fifty cents. So, they're really, it's really um, accessible now to just about everyone to to take twenty or thirty or fifty or a hundred or whatever. Some people have ordered five thousand. Oh wow! Okay, Guy and Wyke and I ordered five thousand and said, "I'll arrange for the whole of Wyke and I to be." Um, to be delivered all the letterboxes and he he got he bought the books and got everybody organized and did the whole thing another guy on the, on the uh around the beachfront at in Auckland St Helier's Corrymarama Mission Bay Remuera Iraqi they're doing that whole area then uh so so there's there's great big dollops and then there's lots and over 500 people delivering books all across the New Zealand, just average grassroots people going out and delivering them. And we have coordinators in every town, not every town, but most towns. Uh, we have people coordinating the, the events, uh, sorry, the, the delivery. We have rural delivery. We have urban delivery. And we have people with maps and systems and networks all set up. It's massively stimulating. And I, and what makes it so much fun is, is, is that you get when you get traction. Can you feel that, can you? Oh, it's huge. I mean, just yesterday, just about to go into a meeting, and um, it's, somebody phoned me and said, um, what are your financial needs? And I said, well, we're just about to print 100,000 books in Invercargill because we have a whole team of people down at the bottom of the South Island who really want to really go for it, and they're competent, they're skillful, they're passionate. And so we've got a $43,000 bill. Hmm. He said, what's your bank account? We'll give you... 21, we'll give you half of that straight away. Wow. Okay. Well, that must um, fill you with um, or put fire in your belly to carry on doing what you're doing. Totally. When you get success like that, and then you get people who come to meetings saying, I got the book and it's totally changed, totally changed the way I think about it, everything. And uh, we do a survey of people inside the meeting, say, how did you come here? Did you come here through radio advertising, through a TV, through, sorry, through a newspaper advert, a flyer or a book? or word of mouth, and we take statistics. And most people have come through receiving a book in their letterbox with an invite to come to the meeting. Okay, interesting. So we know what works. So we're always working out what works. What yeah. is reaching people? What is getting to people? What's the effect of the book? Um, okay, I, I haven't read the book. I was aware of the book, and I'm a lot more curious about it. It sounds like you might have a few copies lying around that you could uh, throw uh, uh, maybe my way or a some of my colleagues. Oh, I'll, I'll send, yeah, if you send me your address, I'll send you some. Okay, we can, we can do that um, when we're finished. But again, the the question um, comes up for me, and I'm sure others. You, you mentioned, you know, seventy five onwards, right? Before, who's pushing this? What is the force behind this? Behind co governance? Yes, you know, and wanting to sort of reinvent. New Zealand into a, a, another way of doing things based on interpretations of, you know, history and generations long gone. What, who is the force behind this? Do you know what I believe it is? Truly and honestly, it is just a tribal raid. 
This is a pre-1840 tribal raid. This is in the DNA of people at the top of Maoridom who've seen an opportunity and they're going for it. Right. To take over the country. But they have to have, you know, cooperating forces as well. Of course. They've and got what's that. in it for them? They had it for, well, Jacinda Ardern is a, it was a sort of Marxist, socialist, whatever you want to call her, but the cornerstone of her th- philosophy, her, her raison d'etre, was take money from the from the rich and give it to the poor. She wanted to redistribute wealth, and so what she did is she um, she was like the, the absolute queen of the elite Maori because she was able to open the checkbook and allow them free passage into the coffers of the government and basically gave them free patches to do whatever they wanted. Then they, you know, the, the, the Maori caucus was formed and you have Maori caucus plus MPs inside the, 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 Maori, the Labour Party, people like McAnulty, Woods, Europeans, and then working with people outside of government like Tiffany O'Regan, like um, you've got, you know, um, who's the guy in charge of the Waikato River Authority? Um, the guy with the, the silk underpants, what was his name? Tukoi Roy Rangi Morgan. That's right. And you've silk got silk underpants, that's right. <laughs> no, there was Tuku Morgan. So you've got you've got a, you've got people, you've got a network of Maori at the top of Mariam who are all networking together and they've seen an opportunity to to have a go at taking New Zealand. Yeah, but you've got you mentioned um, McAnulty, is it the Labour Minister now, Wairapper MP Woods? I mean, what's in it for them, or is this just in an ideological? This is an ideological thing. thing. This is an ideological um, drive that they have deep within them. I guess I've heard I've heard both of those guys on TV talking about it, and they can they have been absolutely convinced. I mean, you know what? I loved history at university, and I studied. The, the beginning of Nazi Germany and the, the the full-blown, you know, Nazi party and how it all worked out. Yeah. You would think, what's in it for them, for these people who got involved in all that? And they found reasons. They, they were ideologically driven. They seared their conscience. And, you know, human beings are capable of doing anything if they're their motivations are there to do whatever they want to do. And they're, they're there for these guys at the top of the tree. What has your experience been then, you know, ticking off the various meetings? And have there been differences in particular areas? Have you noticed any sort of patterns? What's it been like? The best places have, the best place by far has been, they're, they're all good. Every meeting is wonderful. Except Levin was the only one we'd ever had to call off. And I actually made, I made a wrong call. I should have kept that meeting going because the police were in the room and they said, we'll, we'll keep the, the, these, these protesters quiet while you talk. What happened there? I made a wrong call. Well, the police came in and they said to the, they said to the, the main protester, that I call her the pink rhino. She, they said to pink? her. Pink? She was dressed in pink. Oh, okay. All right. She was a really, really large lady. And so she didn't have pink hair either, I take it. No, she didn't have pink hair. Yeah. They said to her, we want you to leave. She said, no, I'm not leaving. And the police just said, okay, that's all right. And they came over to, to, to us and said, well, they're not going to leave. So um, 
um, you know, how about we stay in the meeting while you carry on with the meeting? And I and I just said, you need to do your job. They're trespassing. They need right. to be out of the meeting. We're not going to reward them for their bad behavior. This is your job. These are people who are trespassing. This is a private meeting. The police said, we can't do that. We don't have enough resources. Oh, we, we don't okay. have enough, we don't have enough. There's only they sent over to us an, an an older guy who was like one of the people off Dad's army, <laughs> and they had three young guys who were seriously <laughs> looked like school kicks, like seventh formers. Yeah, uniforms too big on them, and they trottled in. So like Captain Mannering and Pike, <laughs> Captain Mannering and Pike, <laughs> and. Uh, I mean, seriously, yeah. it was like a TV show. It was like a show, and people were all watching all this. And um, so that the policeman said, okay, she doesn't want to go. And I said, mate, call in some reinforcements. Get, get people to do so you can carry out your job here. Now, they've since apologised. They didn't do that, and they've since apologised. So they just didn't physically have the officers in Levin to deal with this no matter what. Is that really what they were admitting? Yes, but they they didn't. They've admitted that, but they could have got resources from other nearby towns. Right. I mean, in Katakati, sorry, not Katakati, in um, Kapiti. Yep. We had a pro, we had another a fantastic venue, a beautiful venue, and there was a, a road leading up to the venue. It was actually a church, and six thirty, people started to arrive. We had a massive turnout there, and um protesters also started to turn up in numbers on the road and the people who'd organised it put road spikes out along the road and cones and everything so they could monitor the cars coming through. Um, and we had a phenomenal event in that place. Um, so we had 23 police turn up and six police cars. Huh. So different resources. Yeah. Well, that's resources. not too far down the road from Levin. That they could have. That's right. They could have come to Levin and sorted it. So you think now, in hindsight, you should have kept that going and said, "Okay, we're not, we're not, we're not stopping here. You're not going to stop this." How how exercised, how ginned up were you? Mentioned the woman in pink. What about the others? Oh, they were all really ginned up. They they were all. But you know, they get in a frenzy, and you know, they 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 get in a they get all worked up and fizzed up and. You know, you're a racist, and then you say, to them, "Well, what's a racist?" They don't, they can't tell you what it is. They can't tell you. I say, well, "What am I?" You know, like all my videos are online about what I, what I'm teaching in the seminar, and I say, nobody has come to me and said you're saying something that's inaccurate, but they'll just say, "Oh, you're spreading misinformation," and I say, "Well, give us an example." Can't do it. Hmm. Or you're creating division. I say, "Well, sh tell me how." They can't. Or you're a racist. Well, tell me, tell me what's a racist. How am I a racist? Mm. And so on, and it goes on and on and on. So this, these are people who are just fizzed up for no reason. You're not sort of worried that anything could happen at any time, are you? When you're at these meetings, like it, is someone really losing the plot, turning up? Could happen. Yeah, might happen, and I'm prepared for all that. Yeah, I was just reading a newsroom um, piece on. And, and this was from February, I think, uh, this year. So a few months have gone. And they're fact-checking you. 
and really fact checking really doesn't mean much these days to me anyway. But they seem to uh, take a bit of delight as casting you as some kind of televangelist type character. And they've mentioned names, Joel Osteen, Billy Graham. Don't know what's wrong with Billy Graham. Uh, but they seem to be sort of, in this article, needling you for your philosophical beliefs. Anything to say about that? Of course, because I'm not a TV evangelist. I've never been on TV as an evangelist. In fact, I spent 30 years going around the world working with mainstream churches like Anglicans, Baptists, Presbyterians, getting 25 grand a year, and I, it was, I loved it. And I traveled the world teaching people in churches about evangelism. Now, I was never, I was never a Joel Olstein. I never had a limo. <laughs> Private jet. <laughs> yeah, or a jet. I, this is just so far off the truth. I was a guy who was serving God as best I could and loving it on nothing, living on nothing. And I managed to purchase that property in the Bay of Islands that I own, which is a beautiful, beautiful lodge. You can you can look at it, www.okebaylodge.co.nz. It's O-K-E. And I purchased that as a result of just um, investing in property when I was a really young guy, my 20s. Ended up with a number of properties, sold the lot, and bought this piece of land in the Bay of Islands. And since then, Maori wanted it, wanted it. And that's where, you know, the Herald. So the, the whole thing with Christianity, they're trying to pit you know, like Christians are bad. Christians yep. just are out to get money. Christians are, you know, they're they're charlatans and especially right, right wing evangelist. Right. Yeah, ultra right. You know, evangelist is just the worst because he's the guy that wants just wants money and he's shafting everybody and you he's, can brainwash people. Brainwash people. He's exploiting people. You know, I was none of that. I, in fact, I've you know I've written a whole lot of books probably a dozen books on Christianity that have been sold all around the world. Yeah, they write here, think earpiece, suit big crowds. He's a good speaker with a dynamic, engaging voice. He, do he does crowd work like a stand-up comedian, they say. Oh, well, I'd take Does that it sound like you? <laughs> I'd take that as a compliment. <laughs> Might even make them laugh if from that, time to time. If I'm, if I'm that good, I'm, I must be dangerous. Because I, I don't see myself as being hugely, you know, massively talented, like they say, but they're trying to paint this picture. I mean, if they really reported on this, they, they should figure out what triggered me into this. And this, if you want to know what that is, that's serious. Because the New Zealand Herald wrote a big article, what triggered Julian Batchelor, like I'm a psychopath on the loose. And, you know, I cracked. And well, well, what was it? What did trigger you? I purchased three and a half acres in the Bay of Islands, which is Bay of Islands, which is arguably the most beautiful piece of land in the whole of the Bay of Islands. Yeah. It was in three lots. It was in 2008, and it was in the most staunch community, Maori community in the country. Mostly Maori, like 98% Maori, and they are very, very staunch. Now, that tells you I'm not a racist because I knew I was purchasing this land right in the middle of such a community. And I decided I'd sell one of the lots because I wanted to get rid of the little mortgage I had. So I phoned Bailey's, and within an hour of the sign, Bailey's sign going up, it was chopped down with an axe, and signs went up all over the place with, this is Maori land, not for sale. Videos suddenly appeared on the internet saying this land was stolen from us, and there's a racist who's bought it. And, uh, and away we went. I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I bought into? Then I got a call from the police, and the police said, 
um, you got to call off the auction at Auckland in Auckland because we just had an email from Maori and Rafferty saying they're coming down with a busload to smash up the auction rooms if you go ahead with a sale. So I went, oh my goodness, okay. So fast forward to 2015, I'm in Auckland. And between 2008 and 2015, there's like this cold war with like Palestine and, and Israel. And we tried to to win Maori over. We were the ones who tried to win them over by giving them resources and fridges and appliances and wood and soil, and all sorts of things, everything. And they never said thank you. And they were absolutely cold. You'd, you'd wave to them on the road and they would, you'd be invisible. There was no response back. Totally unfriendly, real cold shoulder, just stonewalling. So 2015, I'm in my house in Auckland. It's New Year's Eve. The phone goes off at 2 a.m. in the morning and there's two, three South African families who'd rented the house, the lodge, because we restored this beautiful 140-year-old villa right on the beach. And three South African families were in there and the my phone goes off and there's a sound of smashing glass, screaming, shouting, 2 a.m., New Year's Eve. And I said, what the heck's going on? They said, we're having a home invasion. There's 20 Maori men doing a haka on the front lawn. And it's 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 a terror attack. And I said, oh, my goodness, I'll, I'll ring the police now and I'll come up there. I got there in the early, was just getting light. And it was like, honestly, like a movie. Um, and um, they'd had a this home invasion. They didn't actually get inside, but they broke windows. They caused $10,000 worth of damage. And so I went around some of the locals and I said, why the heck did you do this? This is women and children wetting their beds and screaming, shouting. Why don't you come and talk to me? They said, oh, your land's stolen from us. They said, it doesn't matter. You need to come and talk to me about stuff like this. You don't do things like this. That was, you know, what are you trying to do? And anyway, they told me some stories about how the land was stolen. So I I went and, because I'm a little bit of a journalist as well, I went and researched the history of all that land and I wrote a 200-page book, which was peer-reviewed by Dr. Paul Moon, professor of history at AUT. He's a friend. And he said, it's a fine piece of research, and I commend it. He wrote the forward to it. And that went up online. It's still up online now. It's read by, you know, 6,500 people. And it showed that that land was actually sold by a Maori family in 1937 to a school teacher who'd been in the community for 17 years. And it went through the Maori Land Court in Russell in 1937. And the whole community in Rafferty turned up in the court to support the sale because they loved the school teacher. He was called the father of the community. He was the vet, the postmaster, the school teacher, the counselor. He was everything. Wow. And so the story that we were told was the opposite of what of the of the truth. So I went to the community. I said, here's the proof, here's the book. So I got all the source documents. And they're all in the book. That book is still online. It's available publicly to anybody. All the source documents, I said, you guys were wrong. You caused 10 grand's worth of damage. You need to pay up. We even and- know the, we only <laughs> we only know the we even know the family who is behind it. No, dead silence. So you go through to so fast forward 2018. I'm doing some more work on the property with some other guys, and a lady comes up the driveway and she says, I want this land back. She was she engaged me got hold of my upper arms and she started gouging her fingernails into my upper arms and, you know, it was blood all down my arms and everything. We got all the footage on 1080 HD camera plus perfect sound, gave it to the police. The police said, oh man, we've nailed her. She can't get out of this. 
and they charged her with assault with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. It went to court. The footage was showed in front of the whole gallery and people were gasping, saying, this is so serious, this is awful, you know, blood everywhere and all sorts. And the judge says, I'm just going to let you off. And and people just walked out and said, we're disgusted. How so why? Because the judges were being appointed by the Labour government to bring the crime stats down for Māori. So they were told to let Māori off crime. I mean, so, you, you, you're describing that. This is, I think, the worry that people have, and I don't want to be overly dramatic, but, you know, is this where the nation could hit? Well, I'll tell you what else happened. This is not, Paul, you, you just listen to this. In okay. 2022, so I have, nobody in the community comes and talks to us or sees us, and we, we've got this, this, this psychological, heavy, heavy psychological warfare, bullying, intimidation. Videos are going up online every six six sort of weeks or six months or so with fresh videos about how terrible I am and I'm desecrating this the 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 Urupa, which is on my land. They walk through my land. I pay the rates every year. They walk over my land to get to their cemetery, and they've never said thank you. I pay the rates. They just trash. They just it's an entitlement attitude they have. So anyway, then last year. We're doing some more work on the property. A lady comes up and she says, I want to have a chat to you. We never see them. And then she comes up and she says, I want to have a chat to you. Can I come around tomorrow morning? And I said, yeah, what time? We always kept the doors open, you know, try to be friendly. And she arrived. We had some small talk and I recorded the whole thing on my cell phone. We sit down on the front deck at my property and she says, we have some small talk. And she says, let me cut to the chase. If you don't give us your land, we're going to burn your house down. And I said, oh, really? She didn't realize that this was all being recorded. And I said, why would I give you my land? Because we want it. And I said, you can't have it. I paid for it. It's freehold land. I worked very hard for this land. It doesn't belong to you. She said, it belongs to our ancestors. I said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't roll like that. You're in New Zealand. This is 2023. This is not 1840 on a tribal rate. If you want land, you have to pay for it. She said, no, we're not paying for it. I say it again. If you don't give us your land, we're going to burn your house down. So the conversation went on for about 40 minutes and she left. And I said to her, did you come on behalf of the whole community? Is this just you? She said, no, this is the whole community. I'm their representative. Oh, that's interesting. So that, that, that footage went off to the police. Went from one inspector to another. Police came back. They said, I'm sorry, Mr. Bachelor, we can't charge her. Because she didn't say, I am going to burn the house down. She said, we are. Oh, right. Got to nail it. Then the last thing that happened was last year, I got a letter from Heritage New Zealand out of the blue. Heritage New Zealand is a government department that's run by Maori. And... The letter said, Dear Mr. Bachelor, your land has just been reclassified as Wahi Tapu, sacred Maori land. In other words, Mr. Bachelor, you pay the rates, but we've got control of your land. And I went, like hell. And so I started corresponding with Heritage New Zealand. They said this can't appeal. You can appeal, but it's in three years' time, by which time they changed the rules so you can't appeal. I know how it all works. And so 
Maori have reclassified Malay. And I said, how do you justify this? And they said some bodies were dragged across the property in 1775. And I said, you need to prove this. Absolute silence. And some foolish person inside Heritage New Zealand sent me an email with correspondence between them and the locals. And they were basically saying, high five, we got the land. Should we come up and have a feed in the marae and celebrate? And when that happened, I went, right. I had a pencil in my hand. I snapped it in two and I said, I'm mobilizing. That's enough. 14 years of living in tribal rule. It's absolute hell. And if this is what's coming to New Zealand, I need to go and warn people. because Well, it is, sounds like it's already arrived, Julian. It's serious. Well, all the things, and suddenly everything becomes very clear to me. The roads, road sign changes from Maori to, you know, from English to Maori, and and the 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 the, the indoctrination of kids in schools and universities and primary schools and everywhere, and um, you know, the marification of legal documents, the marification of the real estate in, in, agents. Now, um, uh, it's it's this is a, this is a coup. Oh, so that's how you see it. I, absolutely. It's a coup. I see this as a coup. This is a tribal raid. And and the big right. thing that I went back to was I said, we need to go back and say and see what the treaty says. So I, I became a person who became absolutely scholarly with respect to the treaty and studied it. And I wanted to know everything about that treaty, how it came about, who signed it, what happened in the tent on February the 6th, what was Lord Normanby's you know, instructions to Hobson, everything. And I, I've come to an absolutely clear conclusion that there's no, no, absolutely nothing in the treaty about partnership, co-governance, or anything, anything like Maria peddling today. And I said, this is all wrong. This is based on fraud. Everything they're saying. And I said, this can't, this can't go on. And now the RMA's just come out giving Maori. M- Absolute, almost absolute control over private landowners and skipping the councils. So, so when you join all the dots, you can see there's, there's a takeover. There's a coup happening here. This is a this is a coup. Wow. And people talk about, well, the next election, who are we going to vote for? Is it going to be National or, or Act or New Zealand First or who's it, who are we going to vote for? And you know, and they're talking about, oh, well, what happens if you know. Uh, let's let's really hope National Act and New Zealand First get in. And I go, listen, you've got to think long term. If they get in, then what's the Maori Party and the Green Party and the Labour Party going to do? They're going to regroup, regroup for three, six or nine years. And then they're going to get back in and they're going to carry on again. It's just going to be. So never stop, never stop. They'll never stop until they get it. The Heipuapua report says that Maori want full control of New Zealand by 2040. It's all on my video and all the source documents. I'm not making this up. This is all, I'm getting all my information from from data that's available in the public domain. So there's urgency is what you're saying. 2040's not that far away, really. That time can go reasonably fast. And it, could, it could be quicker. They've been they've been going at this since since 1975 with Matthew Rata and the passing of the Treaty of Waitangi Act 1975. So Debbie Debbie Packer has said openly, "We're in for the long haul. We'll get New Zealand." You just mentioned the other political parties. Mm-hmm. Are you satisfied with of any of their stances, positions on co-governance? I mean, they sort of talk around the 
Well, how have they been talking about this in your mind? None of them are where we want them to be because we're saying that co-governance needs to be expunged. It's a good word, E-X-P-U-N-G-E-D, because that means that it's totally removed from all legislation, all race-based legislation, all co-governance arrangements need to be reversed and repealed, and none of them are there yet. They all have what we call limited co-governance policies with respect to their their statements. Um. No one's saying it's a coup, though, like you are. They, they, I think, I think Chris Luxon, for example, Chris Luxon, I think he doesn't know what co-governance is, and he's all at sea. He does not know from what he's saying in the public domain. He does not know what co-governance is, and he does not know the history of New Zealand, and he does not know where the, where, where uh, what's happening politically with what I've just described. David Seymour is more onto it. He's definitely more awake, more alert, but he's not where I want him to be either because he is still talking about a limited co-governance. Winston Peters is by far and away the most closely aligned to me. He's not there yet because he still has, he still has, um, uh, he hasn't come out and said we're completely eliminating co-governance and all co-governance legislation from from the government if we get in, and he will not have the power to be able to do that. So Luxon is the guy that everybody's looking to to actually yeah. turn all this. It's, it's complicated, isn't it? Because it seems that the bureaucracy is entrenched and has been sort of stacking up for quite some time. That that's a, that's a force to be reckoned with, isn't it? You need a hell of a strong leader in parliament to do this. You need somebody who's got not a taint of woke, not a taint of PC. You need somebody who's historically savvy. You need somebody who's politically aware. You need somebody who's going to bat for New Zealand. I believe Mr. Luxon is just wanting. My own impression of him is that he wants to be the prime minister more than he wants to help New Zealand. He wants it on his CV. And he's doing everything he can to win votes but, but he's not the guy, in my opinion, to do what I'm talking about, to expunge co-governance. It's nowhere near. I spoke to Shane Jones, and I've had Winston on this program, but I spoke more about this in a roundabout way with Shane Jones. And and he, he told me that this was not something from everyday Maori people, that most of them that he has contact with and he's well-networked, either don't realize like a lot of people what's going on here or do not support it. And it's important, isn't it, not to conflate <laughs> the average person in with, I guess, who you're calling the elites. Would that be fair? Correct. Absolutely correct. I make it hugely clear. I have friends who are Maori. And I make it hugely I've had Maori come up to me and give me a hug on the street. I've had Maori who've email me. I've got a guy called Tane Tapuna, who's an Napui elder writing to me and saying, I'm hundred percent behind you. And this has got to stop. He's writing to the government departments, all the ministers, and he's trying his best. No, this is not all Maori. This is, in fact, a lot of Maori don't even know what's going on. Hmm. So you've got different groups of Maori. A lot of Maori don't even have a clue what's happening. And like I say, most Maori, good Maori are against this, but you have this determined group 
this minority group of people at the top of Marydom who are in the middle of a tribal raid, pre-1840 tribal raid. That's what it is. And it's treasonous because they're, they're taking over the government. And, you know, the British had problems all the way through the, the last century, century before last, with um, this kind of thing, the Tingi, Kingi Tanga movement and so on, where there were tribes saying, no, we're going to set up our own government. And they had to put them down. There was land confiscations and there was clashes and blood was spilled. Aparananata talks about this. We're having the same thing today. This is another tribal raid, except it's more sophisticated. They used to use spears and clubs. Now they're using computers and cell phones and social media and networking and PR companies. It's much and, and the justice system and the heritage system and so on and so forth. Yeah, they're using instruments that are available to them that are much more sophisticated than pre-1840. Wow. How much of this is external as well? I mean, we know about the sustainable development goals of the UN. Um, I had a look at that over a couple of weekends ago and realised how how the peace parts of that fit together. I don't know how much you've looked at that, but you could you could explain quite a bit of what we're talking about if you sort of helicopter up to that and see what those goals are. You mean the WEF and uh, United Nations and the World Economic Forum and all that sort of, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the sustainable development goals, and I can give you a few examples if you just bear with, because I've got the page here. And uh, what we're talking about is, and they're under interesting headings, but uh, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, no particular order, require uh, reducing inequality, sustainable cities, responsible consumption, climate action, um, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions. It all sounds partnership for the goals. It all sounds kind of great. But once you get into the detail of those things, mm-hmm. you can see that they are, definite instruments of control and we've signed up to a lot of this so i'm just wondering if you've uh, the question is 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 there any outside influence here or is this purely in happening inside new zealand people have asked me about this paul it's a good question a very good question people have asked me about this and i said listen you know what i know what's going on in new zealand and i know that i believe 100 percent that what's happening with Māori and what's happening with elite Māori has absolutely nothing to do with WEF or United Nations. Well, I I wasn't throwing the WEF in there. I'm talking about United Nations because in Australia, you've got the Aboriginal voice. And again, that is is, um, with the aim of um, empowering Aboriginals in the constitution, altering the constitution of Australia and providing direct representation to the Australian parliament sort of, Mm -hmm bypassing the normal representative structures. I think that, you know, that the United Nations has had an influence on the on the direction of Maori. They've sent delegations here to advise and to, I mean, UNDRIP is a United Nations document and we've signed up to that. And Willie Jackson and others are hanging their hat on that. But I believe that aside from all that, marring it, Elite Maori are doing this off their own bat. Mm, but they they're are. doing it with, with cooperation. 
Well, they're getting funding from our government. It's it's Mr. Robinson, and it was Mrs. Ardern, Miss Ardern, and it's now Mr. Hipkins, and Mr. Mr. Woods, and Mr. McAnulty, and a whole lot of others inside Parliament who are who are driving this thing. And I, it's hard to believe that this is being driven by the United Nations or the WEF because I can just see, you know, like it's obvious these guys are being, these guys are pushing it. Now, if somebody's pushing them, where's the absolute proof that that's happening? I know that UNDRIP is probably... Well, Jacinda Ardern, is a WEF young leader? Yes, yes, but was she was she the one who was actually being funded and instructed? And to yeah. what extent was she funded? And to what extent was she instructed? How does that, how does yeah. that all work? Well, I don't know. How does it work? Nobody knows. It's a, it's kind of a, like a conspiracy theory. And one of the things I didn't want to do, I was, you know, there's a saying: a house divided against itself will not stand. And I've had people in my meetings say, "Oh, Julian, you know, we should be focusing on the WEF and we should be focusing on on United Nations and da 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 da." And I said, "I've got to stay focused on one issue because I know what that issue is, and I know who's, you know, I know what's going on here, and we have to focus on this. And our government has control over this." The level of pushback needed then. I mean, you're out there, you're having meetings, people are interested, obviously, a lot of books have gone out, and it's interesting to hear the feedback of how people have turned up there through that, it's turned out to be effective, as you put it. How, it seems to me, the way you're talking, that this is some kind of pushback effort like we've never seen before. Not yet, it's it's growing, it's building, because the next thing we're doing is street marches and public displays. Sorry, of- I should have been more clear, it looks like a pushback effort that has to happen that we've never seen before. That's really what I meant. You're, you're 100% right. To stop this now, to stop this now is going to take a huge effort because we have to have absolutely massive public uh, public disgust and public mobilisation to say we can't have this, we're not having this, and to stop it. Because ultimately the people at the moment can stop it because we live in a democracy, but that's being eroded fast. And there will be a day, I am saying, when we're going to be the Zimbabwe of the South Pacific and there will not be democratic elections anymore. So we have a window here to stop this before it gets any worse. And the pushback has to be huge. I mean, I'm talking about three or 400,000 people marching all at once, like the country marching against this to stop it. Yeah, it's sort of like the old frog in the in the pot. You hear that analogy a lot now. If people's everyday lives aren't, you know, if it's not up at the back doorstep, <laughs> you gave a good description of how that can happen before. Um, you know, that's not really, oh, yeah, I've heard a few things, but hey, it doesn't really affect me, you know. That's why we're getting the book out, because the book we've proven, the little book I wrote, it's short, it's quick, it's not a long read, it's easy. That is a trigger for people to awaken them. It's like a pill. You've got something happening here that's so serious. You've got the media that's grooming the population to accept co-governance as though it's totally fine. Willie Jackson's come out and said, you know, we don't need to worry about co-governance. It's totally fine. Marama Davidson says, with Murray in control, everything's going to be better. You know, the, the country is being groomed. And so they're in sort of like a stupor. And I I made an analogy on my blog yesterday. When you go in for an operation, they give you a pill. And this is half an hour before the op. And you have this pill and it's a sedative and it calms you down, makes you feel like everything's fine. And you're 
totally at the mercy of anybody because you just yes. you'll agree under, to anything. You'll agree to anything because I'm under the influence. So what my book is is an antidote. It reverses the effects of the pill, and the pill is what we're being fed by the government and the media to calm the population down so they can push through with their goals. That's what's happening. It's interesting. Um, just thinking about the political pushback that and the 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 people that you named there. I've talked to David Seymour on this program, and I suggested to him the media was a major problem, not only in this, but you know, in all the other areas with biased reporting. We didn't talk specifically about the fund, but you know, if you don't know it's there, then you know where have you been? Also, the head of the Free Speech Union. I suggested to him that if you were really talking about, you know, disinformation control, et cetera, you needed to look at the mainstream media because they talk to most people. Now, both of those individuals, David Seymour said, well, you're suggesting, you know, that we regulate the, the media, we, we have to be hands off there. And and Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union thought that was too simplistic. But it seems to me that it is the real first up problem, because if you're having communication to the mass of the population that's distorted and biased and really creating, you know, a world that's actually, you know, something different from reality, that is a real problem, huge problem. It's a gigantic problem. And that is perhaps the one of the greatest issues we're facing as a nation because we're now corrupt very corrupt, and we are copying places like North Korea in terms of government control of media, and the people are not hearing the truth. Journalism is supposed to give both sides of a story balanced and let the people make up their mind. That's off the table now. They're, they're telling the people what to think, and they're manipulating the media and I'm hearing, I'm hearing that coming back. I used to be in news, RNZ, for a long time. And one of the things that really got me, I'm not trying to make this about me, but I think it, just, it, it shows you the power of this, is on some occasions I would hear people in conversations telling me something that I'd told them in the news. And they didn't even, they thought they'd come up with it themselves. Very good point. That's a brilliant point. Hmm. That's a very good. That's a very, very, very good illustration. It works, mate. That's how it is. You've just hit the nail on the head. All right. So, for people who might not have gone to uh, a meeting yet, um, are you still on the road? Are there opportunities? Will you keep on? Will you go round the traps again and again as much as you need to do? How, how's it going to work? It's. I, I've got a whole series of meetings in the South Island, probably 20-something meetings in the South Island, the whole of July, June and July are booked out. So I'm going from meeting to meeting to meetings, sometimes every two days, sometimes, um, you know, back to back. And uh, we're just racing around the country doing meetings. I'm training up other people to take meetings. We're hoping to have a guy ready and up and running in Auckland who can take meetings regularly like a Wednesday night in Auckland and we've just got word this morning there's a big bar uh, function centre on the North Shore that are giving their venue for free and we'll have meetings in there regularly so there's a regular Auckland meeting going with another presenter I've got a Samoan guy in in um, 
Kapiti that I'm a 25-year-old Samoan who was at the meeting who's very keen on becoming our sort of running a youth side of this to try and capture the under-30s. So um, it's growing, thankfully, and the traction is huge because once people become awake, they are angry, really angry. They're really, really concerned and really angry. So, um, And they need to be because this is a really serious massively serious problem if we have if we move to a, a, the destruction of democracy and intertribal rule and maori dictatorship it's the end of new zealand it's a bit of a hellscape really isn't it this is not fear-mongering this is this is the stuff that i give you know i'm told oh you're fear-mongering tell me where this is not in the show me something that's not in the public domain that they've actually written about their goals and their aspirations this is the elite maori goals and aspirations and you can see it real time being outplayed it's playing out it's been really interesting talking with it julian thank you for coming on a lot to think about there serious stuff right thank you for having me and you've been a great i gotta say you've been a great interviewer well thank you and it's worked. I appreciate that it's been really good no no you're fantastic it's been a great great interview and it's been relaxed and honest and um you've you've you know your point about somebody regurgitating what you told them on the news yeah i know it hit <laughs> me too i suddenly got it that's a big point it's like the full circle okay. um one last question mm-hmm. were you made for this i felt called to this it's a big difference. It shows you. I I believe God called me to this. And that I don't take that lightly because this is a heavy load. I thought I could get my house burnt down, I could get killed. And before I push play on all this, I, I sat down. The good book says no man builds a tower unless he counts the cost. So I thought, I'm gonna count the cost here. What could happen? They could burn my house down. How would I feel about that? And I went, I'm okay about that. I'll sacrifice my house, even though we've put a, a million dollars into restoring it. And then I thought they could kill me. How do I feel about that? This is before I went live. And a Bible verse came into my mind. Don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. And as soon as that came into my mind, I pushed play. I said, that's it. We're mobilizing. And the moment that that I got rid of those two things, you see, if you, if they've got nothing on you, there's nothing they can take from me because I've given it all up. Everything, your own life, you know. And Jesus said this. I don't want to make this a big religious program, but Jesus said, if you give your life away, you gain it. If he who loves his life will find it. And I found incredible stimulation in life here, and I've lost fear. I don't have any fear anymore. No fear. It's fantastic. I'm alive. <laughs> I feel really alive. And it's it's a marvelous, it's a marvelous cause. And I'm getting people crying saying, thank you for for, for helping us, because they had nowhere to go. They sheep without a shepherd. I'm not this is not a I'm not the pastor of New Zealand. I'm not a I'm not a I'm not doing this as an evangelist. I'm doing this as somebody who loves their country. I've lived here all my life. And it I'm stopping it from being trashed. Julian Batchelor from Stop Co-Governance, thank you for coming on to RCR.
Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.